Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time on episode 59, we're going to talk about vehicles that aren't vans that are still part of van life. We're also going to talk about a simple way to decide on which battery you should use in the back of your rig, a tale from the road involving an unfortunate Honda, and a product review of one of the most essential pieces of kit in my van, the 12-volt kettle. Hello, welcome back. Thank you for listening. I'm very happy to be here with you this week. Have some interesting stuff to talk about regarding vans that aren't vans, and I'll explain that. But before we get there, I totally neglected to talk about something really important last week, and I would like to talk about that very quickly right now. Uh, Last week we were talking about electric vans. Vans that are powered by electricity have no engine in them. And I kind of didn't answer the most obvious question of all, which was, why don't we power these vans with solar power? I mean, imagine that. You have an all-electric van and you've got solar panels. Holy cow, you never need to hook up to anything at any time, except maybe water, but that's fine. You can cook all you want, you can drive all you want, and you get all your power from the sun. That sounds great. It also sounds like science fiction because we're not there yet. And to show you why we're not there yet, I've got two examples. One is a real world example, and that involves the Toyota Prius. Back in the early 2000s, the Toyota people realized that solar power was growing in popularity and coming down in price, and they thought... Well, what if we put solar panels on our cars? We could help charge that electric battery that they have and get a few more miles out of it. And so they did this, but what they quickly realized was the amount of solar power they could collect to charge that battery wasn't as valuable as actually using the solar power to power the fan inside the vehicle to keep the cabin cool. And that's because the AC needed to cool the cabin down would have used more power than they could have collected into that big battery. So Toyota tried to do this and couldn't find a way to make it work, basically. And I don't think they sell those solar-powered Priuses anymore. Put another way, using more math, a 100-watt solar panel, which is the most common size of solar panel, it's about the size of a coffee table. Let's say you wanted to power up your Tesla so you could drive it for the day, and let's say that's 300 miles. So you have a Tesla, you want to drive it for 300 miles. Okay, Teslas have an 85-kilowatt battery usually, so that's 85,000 watts. Okay, see where I'm going with this? And you're using 100-watt solar panels. So if you had 85 100-watt solar panels and put them in direct sun for 10 hours, that would be enough to charge the Tesla once. But think about what I just said. That's 85 coffee tables worth of solar. That likely is larger than the roof of your house. You are not going to find that much solar capability in a vehicle. Now, I know there's these guys out there in a van. They have one of the old FedEx electric vans, and they have this entire acre of solar panels they can deploy. They're doing something experimental, and it is absolutely not practical for the rest of us. So if you're excited about having an all-electric rig that's completely off the grid, I am too. Let's hope we get it in the next 20 years, because we're not going to be getting it in the next two years. 
That said, let's talk about different vehicles you can use to do van life that aren't vans. Now, I have a very broad definition of what van life is. Some people say, oh, well, you've got to have a van. Or other people say, you have to have a van that you built yourself. And some other people say, you have to have a sprinter van or it doesn't count. They're my least favorite people. Here's my definition. If you want to live and travel in a vehicle, welcome to van life. And heck, I'm even going to include boats in that, although I'm not going to talk about them. To me, that is the thing we all have in common. We want to live in these small spaces and travel. Those things, to me, make up what van life encompasses. And let's remember that the word van comes from the word caravan, which referred to a wagon in the 19th century. So the idea that our panel vans are somehow only the real van is kind of fake to begin with. So here are some things you can consider. And you know what? You may already have some of these things. So if you're waiting to do van life until you get a van, you may not have to wait. Number one, trailers. Okay, so sure, we've got the RV trailers. I mean, everyone's seen them and considered them. And they're pretty good. You get everything you need in one small compact package. Used trailers are dirt cheap. And depending on what kind of a vehicle you have, you can tow them with, well, you have to have a beefier vehicle. If you've got your little Honda Fit, you're going to have a hard time towing much of a trailer. But I towed a camping trailer with my smart car. So there is a solution for everybody. Now, trailers have some big advantages. Not only are they cheaper, they can also be left behind when you set up a campsite. So you set up your campsite and then you have your car to run into town or go see the national park or whatever. So I'm a big fan of trailers. And yes, I do think they count as van life, especially because now people are doing something really cool, which is buying empty utility trailers and converting them into campers, just like we would convert a van into a camper. And it's a good way to go because you can buy one of these utility trailers, brand new even, for just a few thousand dollars, and then they are a total blank slate. And they usually have nice square walls and a nice square roof. They're easy to work on. You don't have to deal with airbags or any of that other stuff. It's just all right there and easily accessible for you. So I am a big, big fan of this. One thing people have done is taken old horse trailers and then converted the front half into a camper and then the back half for still horses or maybe putting in a motorbike or whatever. And you can get these things pretty cheap. So yeah, trailers, absolutely an option and a fairly inexpensive one too. Number two, SUVs. Now, I saw a fight online recently as somebody said, hey, I want to turn my Suburban into a van for van life. And people are like, no, you can't do that. That sounds more like SUV life. And no, come on now. A Suburban is a van for all intents and purposes. Yeah, okay, maybe it's shaped a little bit differently. But if you look at it, an NV2500, let's say, versus a Suburban and hold them up side by side, they're not that different. So come on. Stop being a gatekeeper and let people in and let them know that, yes, your SUV absolutely can be converted into a camper because all you need to do is find a way to sleep. That's it. If you can sleep in there, boy, you are ready to go. Kitchen, bathroom, all that stuff, there's ways to accomplish it. And I know this because I saw a woman turn a smart car into a camper. And at the time I saw this, I had a smart car and I was like, holy cow, I don't need to get a van. I can turn my smart car into a camper. 
And then I found out the one limitation, which is you have to be able to lay down. And I quickly realized that I was actually longer than the smart car. She wasn't. She was a little tiny thing, and she was able to make a bed in there, and she had the back fold down into a kitchen, and it was actually really cool. As long as you can sleep in your vehicle, your vehicle can be a camper. Don't let anyone else tell you anything different, because they're wrong. So, SUVs, good. But what if you have a truck, like, say, a pickup truck? Well, if you're the right height, you can, and you have a bench seat, and you're, you know, you kind of got an old-school pickup truck with a bench seat, boom, done, <laughs> right? But if you have a bed in the back of your pickup truck, absolutely. That is one of the oldest camping vehicles ever. In fact, those little shells you buy for the back of your truck, those are called camper shells because people would often just use them like metal tents, which is kind of what I've been talking about all along. You can actually get very fancy with a truck if you want to turn it into a camper. You can start with just one of those camper shells. You can even get a canvas shell for the back if you want it to be temporary. Or you can go all the way up and get an RV that fits in the back of your camper. It's called a truck camper. It is a whole special class of RVs. And, and someone just wrote me about this this week asking me to talk about them. So I will take some time here and talk about these truck campers that I haven't actually talked about before. Truck campers are a really interesting way to go because they have some advantages and disadvantages that no other vehicle has. Just to be sure you know what I'm talking about, these things look like a Class C RV. They've got a big nose that comes off the front, and they're standing on four aluminum poles, basically. And you back your pickup truck under them, lower them down into the back of your truck, and then you usually connect them with turnbuckles to the bed of the truck so they don't slide around. And then you plug them into a connector so that they get power from your truck's battery, usually just to charge the battery in the truck camper. And for the bigger ones, you plug it in again so that the taillights on the truck camper take the place of the taillights on the truck. And the nice thing about what I just described is that it can be undone. You can drive down the road without towing anything, and then when you get to where you're going, you can take this thing off your truck and set up camp with it. You can certainly use it with just those poles. It doesn't have to be in the back of your truck. But that isn't actually all that convenient because it's much more difficult to hook this thing up to your truck than it is to back up to a trailer. The risk of damaging it is actually fairly significant, especially if you're trying to do it by yourself. So there's that drawback. Another drawback is that because of the way they're shaped and the way they have to sit on a truck bed, their center of gravity is really quite high and they have wheel wells to deal with. So this makes some of the storage things inside very odd. They'll typically have only small water tanks and the batteries are in a strange place to get to. So you have to be the right kind of person for this sort of layout. Some of them actually have pop-ups, which is cool. So they, they don't actually add any height to your vehicle. And then when you're getting there, you, you pop up the roof, you know, just like you would have in a pop-up van. The biggest drawback I have with truck campers is the cost. They tend to cost about as much as a Class C RV. You're, you're paying for as much for just the camper part without getting the vehicle part. So, eh, I don't know. But I definitely think they are a worthy option and that for some folks, they're going to be exactly the right thing. So, if you've not even considered it before, go ahead and take a look. The truck campers are a pretty cool thing. And since we're talking about that, we have to address the elephant in the room. If you want a vehicle to sleep in, why not just get an RV? I mean, that's what you want, right? You want a recreational vehicle. Why don't you just buy a vehicle made for that? Used Class Cs are pretty cheap. 
Used Class Bs, that is, the ones that look like vans, are actually super expensive right now because van life is hot. And the reasons people don't want to do this are many-fold. One is that these things tend not to be built as well as things we build ourselves. They're, they're just not. They're mass-produced, and they're made in a design that may be not what you want. I mean, a lot of them will sleep six people. But what if you're traveling by yourself? You don't need six beds. Or maybe you're traveling with pets and you want to create a separate area for them. Well, the RV isn't going to have that. And some people think they're just ugly. Whatever your reason, I understand. I didn't want to buy an RV because I wanted to be stealth. And you really can't be stealth in an RV. But you should consider it. So let's say we've exhausted all those things and you're sitting at home alone right now and you've got a 1994 Toyota Corolla. You don't have much money, but you really are excited about van life and you want to do it and you don't know what to do. Well, you can still do it. Sort of. Before there was stealth vans, there was stealth camping. There were people who would camp in places that weren't campgrounds. You know how you're driving down the interstate and there's that kind of island in the middle that's got all the trees in it and sometimes there's a little pond down in there and stuff? People camp there. They do it secretly, they do it stealthily, but they do it. And there are a whole bunch of YouTube channels devoted to this topic of stealth camping. There are ways to do it that are pretty safe and low impact and it's something that's open to everybody. Plus, if you're in the West, you've got all this BLM land available. You don't actually have to even get permission. You can just go out and do it. So this is technically called car camping at this point, which is that you're camping out of your car. But essentially, what you're doing is the same thing as van life. You may not want to do it for as long, but if you're itching to get into van life and don't have a van yet or don't have a way to build one or whatever, get yourself a tent a sleeping bag, a way to cook, and hit the road. See if it's for you. You can quickly learn from a weekend of car camping whether it's worth it for you to invest in a van. Because if you hate that car camping, no matter what you do to the van, you're probably going to hate van life too. So there's some things to think about. You do not need a van to do van life. But hey, I like vans, so that's how I'm going to do it. What's a simple way to decide on what type of battery you should get for the back? Wow, I have been in a lot of conversations lately about batteries and what kind of battery to use. And, oh, you should always get lithium. It's like, no, lithium's too expensive. Just get AGM. It does the same thing. All right. Ignore all that. Ignore all the specs and the details. I've been able to narrow this down to just a couple of factors to help you decide. So first, you need to know two things. One. Are you building something that you want to last long term, like five or 10 years? And two, do you have a lot of money? Those are the two things you have to know. If you know those two things, I have a guide for you on which battery to pick. First, let's say you have a lot of money and you're going to go long term. You're building a vehicle for five to 10 years, or you just have a lot of money and you don't care. If you meet that criteria, the battery for you is lithium. Get the lithium battery, spend the money on the lithium battery, get it from Renergy or Battleborn or any of the others. I don't care where you get it, but lithium is the best choice for you. Why? Because lithium has the best longevity and the best performance in a van. 
In fact, if it wasn't for the cost, everybody should get lithium. But the cost is substantial. It can be five to 10 times more than the cost of an AGM. And why would you put that in a vehicle you're only going to keep for two years? Or why, if you have a budget of $1,500, would you spend a thousand of that just on that battery? So if you have a lot of money and you're leaning towards a long term, lithium is the way to go. Okay, let's say you don't have a lot of money or you're building a van that you know you're only going to keep for a couple of years. Let's say you've got this old kind of beat up 1985 Chevy van. You're just going to kit it out and tool around for a couple of years. Well, in that case, I recommend an AGM battery. AGM stands for absorptive glass mat. Doesn't matter. The nice thing about AGM batteries is that you can't spill them. They're no maintenance. If they tip over, nothing spills out. They're perfectly safe batteries. They do not perform as well as lithium, whereas a 100 amp hour lithium battery will typically give you 80 amp hours of usage. A 100 amp hour AGM battery will only give you 50 amp hours of usage and they will die quicker. An AGM battery might last two and a half or three years if it's well taken care of, where you can get 10 years out of a lithium battery typically. But you have to consider the cost. You can get a 100 amp hour AGM battery for like 125 bucks or so. You can't get anywhere near a lithium battery for that. What if you are in the circumstance of you don't have a lot of money, you don't expect to have a lot of money, but you are going to be living long term in your van? What's the best option then? Well, if you don't have a lot of money, make it a little bit less convenient and it will save you some money. And in this case, the absolute cheapest way to go is with six volt golf cart batteries. Most people seem to get these from uh, Costco, where they have them right out uh, right at the front door. These are massive, super heavy, wet cell batteries that only come in 6 volts. You have to wire them in series to get 12 volts out of them. But they store a massive amount of energy, incredible capacity, and they love to be charged. And you will get several years out of them and maximum capacity out of a lead-acid battery. So for $200, you can get enough battery to power everything you need for several years with the 6-volt golf cart batteries. They're fairly inexpensive. But again, you're trading things off. They are by far the biggest and heaviest batteries, and they're filled with liquid. So you have to keep that liquid topped off. You have to add distilled water such that they never run dry, because if they run dry, they're dead. So that's it. In short, lots of money and long-term lithium. Short-term, not so much money, AGM. Long-term, not so much money, six full golf cart batteries. That should help you make a decision. And of course, it can be made so much more complicated than that. That's the simplest way. Tales from the Road. This tale from the road isn't really all that interesting, but it does serve as a cautionary tale. I was driving a 1984 Honda Civic wagon to work. I believe I was working at America Online at the time, if you can believe that. And there was a stoplight that was kind of difficult to see the road. So I pulled up to the stoplight and then I inched a little bit forward and stopped again. And then BAM! The person behind me didn't stop. This is a very classic rear-end thing. This happens all the time in these intersections. All right, I got rear-ended. Not the end of the world. 
But got to go out and look at the damage and exchange papers and such. So I get out of the car and the woman behind me was in this big SUV is all frantic and very apologetic. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you didn't keep going, blah, blah, blah. And we go and look at the vehicles and I look at her SUV and predictably there's no damage that I can see. And then I look at my little Honda Civic and I don't see any damage. I'm like, ah, all right. And this poor woman seemed like she was having a really hard time with this. So I said, you know what? I don't see any damage. We're fine. It's all good. And she said, really? Really? She was so excited. And I felt good that I had actually made her day by just not making a big deal out of this. I mean, I could have. She was in the wrong. She hit me. But eh, why? So I drove the rest of the way to work and went to work. And then uh, at work, they gave us something. AOL was famous for giving us things and whatever. I can't remember what they gave me that day, but it was big enough that I needed to put it in the trunk. And I went down to open the hatchback and I turned the key and the trunk wouldn't open. See, just because you can't see damage doesn't mean there isn't damage. And what had happened was she had hit my bumper, which compressed and then bent the metal where the hatch connected, but the bumper popped back out. So the damage was invisible. So I managed to force the trunk open and then I found my tire iron and I had to actually beat the back of the body back enough so that I could close the hatch again. And that was about a $2,500 mistake. And now in truth, that probably would have totaled the car. So that would have been the end of that. But lesson learned... While it's nice to be nice to somebody, you also kind of have to take care of yourself. And if you do get rear-ended, I always recommend you exchange papers. Okay, Q&A. This one's come up a lot. Where can I get electrical work done? Now, one of my big missions in life is to help people be less afraid of electrical work. Because to me, the electrical work is kind of the fun part of van building. It doesn't bother me. I, I, I understand it enough that I like it, but I know that people don't get it. You're dealing with this invisible force that if you handle it improperly is either going to shock you or burn your rig down. That sounds like a reasonable thing to be afraid of. And when you try to research it yourself, not only are there differences of opinions everywhere, there's all these crazy terms like watt hours and amp hours and volts and amps and ohms and what does all this mean? Well, I, I try to keep things as simple as I can on the show and I have spent the time to learn the differences between all those things and I do understand the difference between a watt and an amp and a volt and an ohm. But I get it. If you are not willing to do all that work or don't want to or you're just too afraid to consider even trying it, you want someone else to do the work for you. So who is that? Well, one mistake I see often is that van people will go to household electricians to have this done. And household electricians know household electricity. But that's not what we're dealing with in a van. We're dealing with vehicular electricity. So I think the people you should go to are large car stereo shops in your area. Now, they may not offer this as a service, but if you learn enough about what you want they should be able to do it all because it's actually the same thing as installing a complicated car stereo. 
they're running power wires, they're installing fuses, there's an inverter that they can install or not, they're installing an extra battery. I mean, all the high-end audio systems deal with stuff like this anyway. And the tricky parts, such as fishing cables through, getting the right size wires and fuses and that type of thing, they will know how to do. If you do not want to do the electrical work yourself, I highly suggest you go talk to some of the folks at the professional car audio shops and see what they will do for you. They tend to like weird projects in my experience. If you're doing something unusual, you might find a guy who thinks it's really cool and maybe you can work together to come up with the best system possible. Honestly, the household electrician doesn't have the right skill set for this. Product review. I'm going to talk about my 12-volt kettle because I love my 12-volt kettle. Now, the one I have has a rather boring name, and it's called a Sun's Bell. <laughs> I'm going to read the whole title on Amazon because they always crack me up. Car Kettle Boiler Sun's Bell 750 Milliliter Car Heating Travel Cup Stainless Steel Mug Car Coffee Cup Warmer with DC 12-volt Charger for Car Kettle Boiler. Yeah, they're trying to optimize their search there and including everything they possibly can. But look, this is just a 750 milliliter container that you plug into the cigarette lighter and it makes hot water. And I don't use it in the back of the van, I use it in the front. If I'm stealthing, which I do most of the time, I want to leave right away. So I will get up, put on shoes, get in the driver's seat, usually without even going outside the van, and then drive somewhere. Like, I may go from one rest area to another, or from, like, the Walmart parking lot to the museum parking lot, or something like that. And then when I get to that second parking lot, that's when I make breakfast and do all my ablutions and all that stuff. But during that drive, I've got my 12-volt kettle going, and it's making me nice hot water that I will use to make my coffee. These things are not complex devices, but some are better than others, so I want to talk about specifically this one because it's a good one. It's very simple. It doesn't have an on-off switch. You just plug it in, and when you plug it in, a red light comes on, and when it's heated to near boiling, a green light comes on, it powers off, and you've got your hot water. And it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do this. It's not super speedy. But heck, if you're just driving during that time, then it's just, like, free. If you imagine the containers that the cream comes out of at Starbucks, it looks very much like that, and it has that handle. I take that handle and hook it over the back of the console so I can reach it while I'm driving and check on it. And, geez, it just works. Now, it's 33 bucks, which may sound like a lot for this, but this is a device that you don't want to get a cheap one. You'll see some of these for 10 or 12 bucks, but they're so cheap that they're going to blow fuses or even catch on fire. I recommend this one. I really like it. I'll have a link in the show notes, but if you want to search for it, it is the Sun's Bell, S-U-N-S-B-E-L-L, 750 milliliter. <laughs> this thing is so long. Kettle, 12 volt charger for... You'll find it. I, I know you will. A place to visit. So this is a generic place to visit. This is my go-to place to visit. It's kind of funny, but this works. I have traveled a lot, and I continue to travel a lot, and I have been doing travelogues and writing about my visits for years and years and years and years. This podcast certainly isn't the start of that. But there have been times when I've gone to visit a place and haven't been able to find anything interesting there. And during those times, I have a go-to. Anywhere I am, if I can't find something interesting to do, I always go to the cemetery. 
Yes, that's right. You can have a day just by visiting cemeteries. In fact, I have never been to a boring cemetery yet. They all have stories to tell. If you look at them with the right attitude, you can see how the cemeteries have grown in time. Like, there's always an old section and a new section. And in some large communities, the sections are divided by religion in some cases. Or sometimes there are these very sad stories where you'll have this whole section of stones of, like, babies. Some of them are named and some aren't. And then some of these are just so strange. The cemetery in Cozad, Nevada. The cemetery in Cozad, Nebraska. Now, this is Cozad, Nebraska. You may not have heard of Cozad unless you drive on I-80 a lot. It's not even in the town. It's way out down a frontage road, and it's a sizable cemetery, but it's completely rural. But when you walk into the cemetery, this electric door slides up, and then there's this video screen, and it's like talking to you about the dead people. I mean, you can even see video of some of the dead people on this screen. Very, very strange. Or in Aurora, Utah, fairly good-sized cemetery, but not a single cross, because it's in Utah, and most of the dead people in there are Mormons, and Mormons are iconoclasts. They don't wear crosses. And they also had different dates on their stones. It didn't say born and died. It said born sealed and died. Because when you get married in the Mormon church, that marriage is eternal. You are sealed to another person forever, which might be pretty scary. Or there are just some cemeteries like Hope Cemetery in, in you know what? Hope Cemetery in Barry, Vermont. I'm going to save that. We'll talk about that as its own separate place. But if you are in a place and looking for something to do and you just can't find anything to do, I don't care if it's raining or snowing or whatever, check out the cemeteries. They're always, always fascinating. And sometimes you find weird things like killed by Indians on them. It's always nice to have that card in your back pocket so that you know you're never going to find a boring place. Well, folks, thanks for listening once again. This was episode 59. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Yes, folks, we do have a Facebook group. It is called Built to Go, a Facebook group. I would love to see you there. We're also on Twitter and on Instagram and all these things, but honestly, I don't know how to use those things, so if you want to kick my butt and have me do the more, let me know. And until next time, remember what Albert Einstein said. Look deep into nature, and then you will understand everything better.